Now, friends, we come to one of the most remarkable books in the Bible. And I'm sure that you've heard me say that many times. In fact, when we have finished the five-year course, you will have heard me say that 66 times because every book in the Bible is remarkable. But this book is remarkable in a very unusual way. Most of the prophets hide themselves and maintain a character of anonymity. That is, they do not project themselves on the page of their prophecy. But we come now to a prophet whose prophecy is largely autobiographical, and certainly in many places that is true. And I have put in our notes just some of the things, and I'd like to run through them briefly for you to let you know that this man, what we're going to look at, and we'll take each one of these up separately. And first of all, he was born a priest in Anathoth, just north of Jerusalem. And second, he was chosen to be a prophet before he was born. Third, he was called to the prophetic office while very young. He was commissioned of God to be a prophet. He began his ministry during the reign of King Josiah, and he was a mourner at his funeral. And then the sixth thing, he was forbidden to marry because of the terrible times in which he lived. And the seventh thing, he never made a convert. He was rejected by his people. He was hated. He was beaten. He was put in stocks. He was imprisoned. He was charged with being a traitor. The eighth, his message broke his own heart. Nine, he wanted to resign, but God wouldn't let him. And the tenth, he saw the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. He was permitted to remain in the land by the captain of the Babylonian forces. When the remnant wanted to flee to Egypt, Jeremiah prophesied against it. He was forced to go with the remnant to Egypt, and he died there. Tradition says that he was stoned by the remnant. Here's a remarkable man. I call him God's crybaby, for that's what he was, a man in tears most of the time. And God chose this man. He had a woman's heart, a mother's heart. He had a trembling voice and tear-filled eyes, but he was called to deliver a harsh message of judgment. The message that he gave broke his own heart. This man, a great man of God, may I say to you, I don't think that you and I would pick this kind of a man to give a message. At least I don't think that we would. We would want to pick some hard-boiled person to give a hard-boiled message, would we not? But God didn't pick this kind of a man at all. He picked a man like this, and the message broke his heart. I want to read two statements made concerning Jeremiah by great men of the past. And I'd not want to begin this study without passing this on to you. Lord Macaulay said this concerning this man. 
It is difficult to conceive any situation more painful than that of a great man condemned to watch the lingering agony of an exhausted country, to tend it during the alternate fits of stupefaction and raving which people in dissolution and to see the symptoms of vitality disappear one by one, till nothing is left but coldness, darkness, and corruption. That was the position and the call of Jeremiah. He stood by and saw his people go into captivity. Now, their other statement I'd like to read concerning him, Dr. Moorhead has given us this very graphic picture of him. And will you listen to this? It's tremendous. I'm reading now. It was Jeremiah's lot to prophesy at a time when all things in Judah were rushing down to the final and mournful catastrophe when political excitement was at its height, when the worst passions swayed the various parties and the most fatal counsels prevailed. It was his to stand in the way over which his nation was rushing headlong to destruction, to make a heroic effort to arrest it and to turn it back and to fail and be compelled to step to one side and see his own people, whom he loved with the tenderness of a woman, plunge over the precipice into the wide, weltering ruin. These are tremendous statements made concerning that. You and I are probably living at a time just like that. We're a great nation today. And we've accomplished many things. We've gone to the moon. We have atom bombs. We're a strong nation. But inside our nation today, there is this same corruption that is carrying us down, actually will carry us down to a dismemberment and to disaster. It's coming, my friend. Revolution may be around the corner. Now, I know that what I'm saying is not popular today. You just don't say it. You have now nice panels where you discuss how we're going to improve society and how we can work out our problems. And today, God is totally left out of the picture, absolutely left out. And today... If the Bible is mentioned, it's mentioned in a way with a curled lip by some unbeliever. The ones who are believers who have a message from God are pushed aside. I know that. And may I say to you, I'm not sure, but what we are very much in the same position that Jeremiah was in. And for that reason, I'd like to say that I feel that this book, is going to have a message for us today. And I hope that you'll ask your friends to listen in. I hope you'll ask them to write in and get notes and outlines. And I hope you have them, because they're important for this book. Now, God shows this man who had a mother's heart, a trembling voice, and tear-filled eyes to deliver a harsh message of judgment. 
and the message that he gave broke his own heart. Now, one author has put it like this. He was not a man mighty as Elijah, eloquent as Isaiah, or seraphic as Ezekiel, but one who was timid and shrinking, conscious of his helplessness, yearning for a sympathy and love he was never to know. Such was the chosen organ through which the word of the Lord came to that corrupt and degenerate age. Now, when the Lord Jesus appeared, he asked the question of his own, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It was a difference of opinion. None of them really knew, and those who did not know him had some different ideas. Some thought he was Elijah, and there was a reason for that. Some thought he was John the Baptist, reason for that. And some thought he was Jeremiah. And may I say to you, those who thought that had a good reason for believing it, because Jeremiah was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And the difference between him and the Lord Jesus was that the Lord Jesus was bearing your sorrows and my grief, and my sorrows and your grief, while Jeremiah was carrying his own burden, and it broke his heart. He went to the Lord one time, and he says, I can't keep on. This thing's tearing me to pieces. I'm about to have a nervous breakdown. You better get somebody else. Oh, the Lord says, all right, but I'll just hold your resignation here on my desk because I think you'll be back. And he came back, and he said, you know, the Word of God was like fire in my bones. I had to give it, although it broke his heart. And God wanted that kind of man. And you know why? Because that's the only kind of man that can give a harsh message. Now, we'd want some hard-boiled fellow. My feeling is that you need somebody to be able to talk up to some of these world dictators today. But you know, God, I don't think he'd pick that kind of man. He'd send somebody with a broken heart. And why did he? God wanted the children of Israel to know, though he was sending them into captivity, that he was judging them, that it was breaking his heart. And as Isaiah said, judgment is his strange work. This is the man that we're going to look at, Jeremiah the prophet. He is here identified for us, and probably ought to mention this. He began his ministry about a century after Isaiah, a hundred years after Isaiah. And he came along at the time of the Babylonian captivity, and he began during the reign of Josiah, and he continued right on down through the Babylonian captivity. And he's the one that predicted the 70 years' captivity in Babylon. And he saw beyond all that darkness to the light. And no prophet spoke so glowingly of the future as he did. And we'll have occasion to see that. Now, the message of Jeremiah was not only unwelcome, but it was actually rejected. And the thing that I think characterizes this man's message is backsliding. It occurs 13 times. 
It's used only four other times in the Old Testament. In the book of Proverbs once and in Hosea three times. And Hosea's message is that of the backsliding nation. And we have here another word that occurs. Babylon occurs 164 times more than in the rest of Scripture combined. Babylon became the enemy. Now let me read, beginning here with verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Now, I'm not going to turn to this. This reveals, however, something I said when we were in the historical books. I said, beginning with 1 Samuel, going through 2 Chronicles, that those three series of double books were historical books that should be woven in, or the prophets, rather, should be woven in to that period, because that's the period in which the prophets spoke except the post-captivity prophets of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three in the Old Testament. Now, what we have here in this first verse is a reference to Hilkiah, who was his father. Now, Hilkiah was the high priest who found the book of the law of the Lord that was given by Moses during the time of Josiah, and that is the thing that sparked the revival during the reign of Josiah. Now, you'll find that back in 2 Kings, the 22nd chapter, and in 2 Chronicles, the 34th chapter. And I'm not going to turn to it. Now, he says he was in Anathoth. That was his hometown. It was just a few miles directly north of Jerusalem. Now, you'll notice here, he says, to whom... The word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Now, Josiah was eight years old when he came to the throne. He reigned thirty-one years. Jeremiah began his ministry when Josiah was twenty-two years old, and he prophesied during eighteen years of Josiah's reign. And Jeremiah was a mourner at the funeral. And that is in Second Chronicles 35:25 of Josiah. Josiah did a very foolish thing, and sometimes God's men do very foolish things. He went over to fight against the Pharaoh of Egypt at Carchemish when he came up actually not against Judah at all, but for some strange reason why Josiah went after him, and out there in the valley of Esdraelon, Armageddon, if you please, at Megiddo, why Josiah was slain. And this man Jeremiah mourned, because this was a good reign, and it was actually the last revival that came to these people, and it was a great revival. And Jeremiah mourned because he saw that the nation was going to lapse now into a night out of which it would not come until after the Babylonian captivity. We find here in verse 3 now, chapter 1 of Jeremiah, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, 
unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So now we are told here very definitely that Jeremiah began his ministry during the reign of Josiah, the thirteenth year. And he conducted his ministry right on down through the Babylonian captivity. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar had received a message from Jeremiah, and he told his captain, you let that man Jeremiah do what he wants to do. If he wants to come with the other captives, fine. If he wants to stay there, let him stay there. And what, of course, actually happened was Jeremiah did not want to go with the captain. They had rejected his message. They're going into Babylonian captivity, and Nebuchadnezzar is permitting him to make his choice. So he remained with those few that remained. And then those fugitives took off and went down to Egypt, and they did it against the advice of Jeremiah and his wisdom. And finally, they apparently stoned him to death. That's the story of this man. You see, we know a great deal about Jeremiah. We don't know that much about Isaiah or Ezekiel. We probably know a great deal about Daniel because the first part of his prophecy is rather personal also. But now take the minor prophets, and some of them, we know nothing about him. That man Obadiah, we just don't know a thing about him. And there are others just like that. Now, we find here in verse 3 that Jehoahaz, a son of Josiah, who's not mentioned here, he reigned only three months. He didn't even get the throne warm until they eliminated him. And then the king of Egypt placed his brother Eliakim, Jehoiakim, upon the throne. He reigned 11 years. And it was Jeremiah warning him not to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he did. And the king took him captive to Babylon and placed on the throne at that time in Jerusalem, Jehoiachin. And he reigned three months and ten days. And he's not mentioned here because of the fact that he didn't get the throne warm either until he's eliminated. And Nebuchadnezzar took him captive to Babylon and placed Zedekiah, his father's brother, on the throne. And he reigned eleven years. And he's mentioned here, "...then Zedekiah rebelled, and Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem, slew his son, put out his eyes, and took him captive to Babylon." Now, that, you say, is very brutal. I agree with you. It's very brutal. But you must remember, Nebuchadnezzar had been very patient with that city, and the city and the people refused to listen to Jeremiah. We'll see that as we go into the prophecy. Now, we find here in verse 4, we have the call of this man to the prophetic ministry. And this, I think, is rather important. I did not give you at the beginning an outline of this book at all. I just passed by it altogether. And I do not know whether I should do that for the benefit of those of you that do not have our notes, because the outline is important. And I trust that you will write in and ask for the notes and outlines that we do send out for this particular book here. And we trust that many of you will ask for them, because we want you to have them. 
But now let me mention here at the very beginning, we have the call of the prophet during the reign of Josiah here in chapter 1. And we're going to see that now. And then from chapters 2 to 20, we have prophecies to Judah and Jerusalem prior to Zedekiah's reign, which means that a great deal of the messages of Jeremiah and his ministry was given actually before the book of the law of Moses was found by Hilkiah. Now, I'm reading verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, and I can't emphasize that too much. This is the word of the Lord. If you're not prepared to go along with that, you just well put out in the book. It'll have no message for you. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, this is the word of God. I don't propose to tell you how God got it through to him, but he got it through to him. And this is the word of the Lord. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. I'm sure glad that the mother, Jeremiah, didn't practice abortion. He'd never been born. Somebody says, when is a child a child? May I say, the moment that it's conceived. Read the 139th Psalm. David said that he was formed in the lower parts of the earth. That is, he was formed in the womb of his mother. And that that very moment that that began, and there is, I'm told by a genealogist that there's tremendous development at the very beginning. And I want to say this, and again, looks like I'm just not making friends and influencing people. My friend, abortion is murder, unless it's done to save life. It just happens to be that. It can't be looked at any other way according to the Word of God. God says, I knew you. And he called this man. Now, the important thing is, why did God say that to this man? My friend, he's going to give a message that's going to be rejected. It's going to cause him to be imprisoned. He's going to have to stand for God. And it's going to be a message that will break his heart because he loved his people and he hated to tell them what was going to come to them. But God wanted a man with a message like this, a tender man. Now, in the court of old Ahab and Jezebel, God sent a hard-boiled prophet by the name of Elijah. But now... God wants his people to know before they go into captivity, he loves them. He wants to save them, and he wants to deliver them, and he picked this kind of a man. Now, why does he tell this man this? He wants to encourage him. He said, I want you to know, Jeremiah, the important thing is I am the one that I have called you, I've ordained you, and I've sanctified you. Now, that word sanctification here just simply means this, as we've seen this word before. It means to set aside for the use of God. Those vessels, I've referred to this before. Back in the tabernacle and in the temple, those vessels, the old beaten-up pans and pots that were there that were used in God's service, they're called holy vessels, are sanctified. My friend, old battered 
up stuff. They look like they ought to trade them in on a new set. Well, why were they called holy? Because they were for the use of God. Anything that's for the use of God is sanctified when it's set aside for that. And God says, before you were born, Jeremiah, I set you aside for my use. So you don't worry about the effect of your message. Don't worry about that. You just give my message. And I want to be very frank with you. I feel very comfortable today as I sit here, because many of you know I'm not pulling punches. I'm giving it just like it is. And that's the way I intend to do it. And listen, that's my responsibility. And I want to say this kindly. I am not responsible to you. I'm responsible to God, and I turn my report into Him. And since I turn my report into Him, it's just too bad if I don't please you. I'm sorry. I wish I did. But I know that a great many not very happy with this type of a ministry. I had this ministry as a pastor. I always had a little group. Somebody said, my, how people loved you. Yes, they did. And I thank God for that today. But you know, I always had a little group of dissidents. Oh, they were cantankerous. They were mean. They were troublemakers. And I don't think some of them were quite honest. (laughs) In fact, I know they were not. May I say to you that if you're giving out the Word of God, you're responsible to God. And you're set aside for that ministry. This man was. God says, I've ordained thee a prophet under this nation. Now, that gives him authority. It gives him encouragement. And I tell you, it's going to help him through many a dark day. Now, God says, then said I. Now, listen to Jeremiah's response. And at this time, he was about 20 years old. But this verse doesn't look like it. Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak from a child. Now, actually, he was not a child as you and I think of a child. This is the same word that was used in Zechariah, the second chapter, verse 4, where the angel says to Zechariah, Speak to this young man. Now, young man is the same word that's translated child. And This man, Jeremiah, at this time, was a young man. And I think it's more or less assumed that he was about 20 years of age at this time. Now, the reason he says this, he says, I'm a young, inexperienced fellow. I'm not capable of doing this. I'm not prepared for it. And I've called attention to this before. Have you ever noticed that the man that God uses is the man that doesn't think he can do it? If you think you can do it today, then may I say to you, I don't think God can use you. I had a young preacher that came in to see me, and he was just absolutely green with jealousy of another man in the town where he was. And he said this to me. He said, I'm a better preacher than he is. I'm a better pastor than he is. I'm a better speaker than he is. And he just went down the list. And when he finished, and he said, Now I want to know why God's using that man, and he's not using me. He said, My ministry is just falling flat. Well, I said, I'll tell you why. I said, You think you can do it. And I happen to know the other man, and the other man really doesn't believe he can do it. And I said, God always uses that. God chooses the weak things of the world. And Jeremiah says, I'm just a young man. I'm not... I'm not equipped. I'm not able to do this. 
And now, notice what God says to him, "...but the Lord said unto me, Say not, I'm a young man, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak." Isn't that good? Isn't that wonderful? Oh, may I say this, not as carping criticism, but just as a statement of fact. I listen to the liberals, and they're more liberal pulpits than they are fundamental today, but the fundamentalists are getting the people. The Bible-believing churches, they've got the thing moving today. The liberal hasn't. And if you would ask me what's wrong with these churches, primarily, it's actually not liberalism. The old boy up there speaking doesn't believe it. (laughs) He's giving out theories and ideas, and he has panel discussions where he tells what he thinks. God says, you give what I command you to give, and give it without authority. May I say to you, when you're giving out God's Word, it's very comfortable. It's very wonderful. I love this. I love Jeremiah. I'd love to have comforted that man, and he sure has comforted me today. I can assure you that. Listen, verse 8. Be not afraid of their faces. And one of the comfortable things about radio is you can't get to me. (laughs) A man that was up in Oakland, and he lives in this area now, he's a wonderful Christian now. He belonged to a certain cult where he believed that you went through rituals and gyrations and all kinds of things in order to be saved. And he was a contractor, and in the morning he'd be driving to work, and up in San Francisco, I'm on the air about that time of the morning, and he'd started listening to me. And he said, you made me so mad, you kept telling me I was a sinner. (laughs) He says, if I could have got to you, I would have punched you in the nose. And he's a big fella, and I think he could do it. And I'm very thankful I'm on radio because I think there would be some that would punch me in the nose because of the fact that I say things they don't like. Now, the interesting thing is this man kept listening and listening and listening. And one day he turned to the Lord and said, I'm a sinner. (laughs) Save me. And he accepted Christ as his Savior. May I say to you, that's the joy giving out the Word of God. God says... Go ahead and give it out. It won't return void to me. I can assure you that it will accomplish something. That's what's needed in the pulpit of this land today. Man to speak with authority what God has written down. That's all that he asks us to do. It's a very simple task in one way and another. It's not so simple. He says to Jeremiah, "'Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord.'" God says, I'm on your side. Martin Luther said, one with God is a majority any time. I belong to a minority group today, but really, if you want to know it, I'm in a majority. Now, verse 9, Then the Lord put forth his hand, he touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I put my words in thy mouth. That's very important. God has inspired The words of Scripture, not the thoughts or the ideas. The devil was not inspired to tell a lie, but the words that say that the devil told a lie, those words are inspired. The words of Scripture are. 
not the thoughts or the ideas. Too often today we go astray at this particular point. And that's one reason, friends, I cannot command certain so-called translations. They're good interpretations, but they're lousy translations because it's the words that are inspired. We need to get back to that today. It's like the girl that was taking music lessons, and she wanted to be a singer. And finally, the time came for her to have a concert, you know. And she had the concert, and after it was over, she was back in the dressing room, and friends came back, and she was interested to know. She said, what did my teacher say? And a friend there who knew the teacher and knew her, he wanted to be very diplomatic. He says, well, he said that you sang heavenly. Oh, she said, did he say that? Yes, he said, he said that. Well, she said, did he say that in so many words? Well, that was not exactly the words that he used, but that's what he meant. She says, I want to know exactly the words he used. What did he say? Did he say that I sang heavenly? Well, he meant that, but what he really said was, that it was an unearthly noise. May I say to you, friends, it's the words of Scripture that are inspired. God says, I'm going to put my words in your mouth. Now, verse 10. See, I have this day set thee over the nations, over the kingdoms, to root out and pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Had you ever stopped to think that all the government projects that these kings in that day, for instance, Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and Zedekiah, these boys all had, you know, certain bureaus and certain government projects. They were going to improve Jerusalem. They were going to deal with the ecology. They were going to do away with the slums. They had a poverty program. They had all of those things. And Jeremiah wasn't even paid any attention to in that day. They ignored him. But now, friends, about, not quite, 3,000 years have rolled around. Let's say 2,700 years have gone by. Could any of you mention those government projects today? Can you ever tell me anything that Zedekiah ever did that was worthwhile? Can you mention anything that Jehoiachin or Jehoiakim did? Friends, they just not mentioned. They did nothing good. And yet in that day, what they were doing, everybody thought was the thing and the popular thing. But this man Jeremiah was ignored. But who are we reading today? We're reading Jeremiah. These are the words of God, my friend. These are the things that are going to survive and are going to survive today. You and I are living in a nation that no longer hears God. They don't hear Him in Washington. They're not hearing Him in the universities or in the classroom today. And they're not hearing God today in the military. They're not hearing God among the scientists. But God is speaking, and His Word will survive. Oh, this is such a great book, is it not? And now He says... God says, I'm really going to make you the one in charge. And poor little Jeremiah, he's wanting to retire even before he gets the job. Now, verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? Now, these are the things that 
called him to the prophetic office, and now God gives them these two as tremendous examples. First is this, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Now, the almond was known as the waker or the watcher. It's the first one that bloomed in the spring. It was the one that actually was a tree that came out of the long night of winter to bloom in the spring. And Jeremiah was to be an alarm clock, a waker. He was going to wake them up, but they didn't like to be waked up. No one who's asleep wants to be waked up. Alarm clock is the most unpopular thing in the world. In the dormitory where I was, every alarm clock was battered up. I'd thrown one against the wall many a morning. Alarm clock is not popular. And here, that's what this man's going to be. He's going to be a waker. That's one thing. Verse 13, and I should read verse 12. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. I'm going to give you a word that's wake them up. He's going to shake them. He did too, by the way. Verse 13, And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, What seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is toward the north. Well, now, what was the seething pot? Well, that was Egypt, and Assyria were no longer a danger to the southern kingdom of Judah. But round that fertile crescent in the north, there was a boiling pot, the rising power of Babylon, which was to eventually destroy the nation. And this man, Jeremiah, is to constantly warn them of what is going to happen to the nation. Now he says, For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come. They shall set everyone his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem and against all the walls thereof round about and against all the cities of Judah. You see, God, a century before, had delivered Jerusalem. Now the false prophets are all running around and saying that God's going to do this again. You see, at that time, the prophets of the past, they're gone. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, and Nahum, all of them together were contemporary with Isaiah. And they've now passed off the scene. I think Zephaniah and Habakkuk was still living. And Ezekiel and Obadiah, they were contemporary, but they're not going to prophesy until you get down yonder to the captives in Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon, by the canals down there. And Daniel is to prophesy later on. So this man here, he stands alone, and he is to utter these judgments that are to come upon the nation. Now, what will be the reaction to this? Verse 19, "...they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee." Go ahead, Jeremiah. They're going to resist you. They won't listen to the message, but you give the message. And that's our business today, by the way. Oh, this is a tremendous chapter, is it not? Now, friends, in chapter 1, we saw the call and commission of this man, Jeremiah. And it was very impressive. I trust it was that way to you. God called him as a young man, probably 20 years of age, when he called him. And we are told here very definitely 
that the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. And he was eight years old when he began to reign. So he was at this time 21 years old, and Jeremiah was 20 years old. These two knew each other, very definitely so, because the father of Jeremiah found the book of the law in the temple, and he brought it to the king, and it was the basis of the revival that came to pass during his reign. Now, these two young men began their ministry, in one sense, as young men. And we have here now two young men. Now, he makes it very clear that he felt incapable. He felt unworthy. He felt that he could not measure up to the office of a prophet. And he offered that as an excuse. God says, I'm going to put my words in your mouth, and you'll be giving my word. And may I say that to me this is a tremendous chapter. I hope it is to you. And I want to say this. Now, I know there are those that say, yes, you're retired now, and retired preachers are always telling everybody else how they should do it. But I want to make this statement. I'm going to risk that chance of being labeled as one that's trying to tell everybody else how to do it. But I do not believe that any man ought to stand in the pulpit and give a message until he's sure that he's giving the Word of God. If he has any doubts, or if he feels like he should give his own ideas and preach a liberal social gospel, my point is that he ought to stay out of the pulpit. He's got no business being there, because today the important thing... Now, I don't care how much homiletics you have. I don't care how much hermeneutics you have. And I don't care how much theology you've had. And I don't care about all this sophisticated training today unless you're confident you're giving the Word of God. You ought to stay out of the pulpit. That's important. I think it's very important. Now, we come here in chapter 2 to the first message that this man Jeremiah gave, and he gave it to a backslidden nation. I'm going to give you here a few of the details and the mechanics. And I recognize on radio that we can get bogged down in this type of thing, but the next few chapters are rather important, and we'll not understand them until we understand the background. Chapters 2 through 6 was given during the first five years of Jeremiah's ministry. You see, he began, we were told, in the 13th year of the reign of this man. And these messages were in those first five years, before the finding of the book of the law. And then in chapters 7 through 9, the messages there have to do with the cleansing of the temple and the discovery of the book of the law. And that was in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah. And then chapters 10 through 12, you have messages that are messages that came in the time of the period of reform and revival after finding 
the book of the law. And we're going to discover that that revival was a very surface sort of thing. It was an experience sort of thing. No great emphasis upon the Word of God. And it'll never be a real revival, friends, until there is a real emphasis upon the Word of God. Now, in order to orient you into where we are, and that's the reason I think the prophetic books should be studied along with the historic books. And therefore, I want to turn back to the 34th chapter of Second Chronicles and see if we can't fit ourselves into this particular place in history. I'm reading now from Second Chronicles, the 34th chapter, beginning with verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. Now, here's an outstanding king right at the end of the kingdom of Judah. And now I keep reading verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And now it was during that period that these first five years that Jeremiah is prophesied. Now, will you notice? And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images that were on high above them. He cut down in the groves and the carved images and the molten images. He broke in pieces, made dust of them, strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, even unto Naphtali with their mattocks round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves and had beaten the graven images into powder, cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Now, verse 8 says, Now in the eighteenth year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Maaseiah, the governor of the city, and Joahah, the son of Jehoiaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And it was then that Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord that was given to Moses. You see, there weren't many copies, two, one for the king, one for the priests, and they'd been lost. They were to God, you see. Now Jeremiah comes out, and will you listen to him? This is a period, as we've seen when we read this historical section, they had gone into idolatry. They had forsaken the living God. And this second chapter, but the first prophecy that he gave us a wonderful prophecy. I think it would be difficult to find any portion of Scripture that would surpass this particular section in genuine pathos and tenderness. And it's eloquent. And that's the thing we want to notice. 
you find here the earnest pleading of a God who has been forgotten and insulted. His grace and compassion towards the guilty nation, blended with solemn warnings of dreadful days to come if the heart's not turned back to him. Altogether, that make this discourse now coming up one of the great ones that we have in the Word of God. Now, actually, this first one begins here with chapter 2 and goes through chapter 3, verse 5. This is the first one that is given. And now we have it fitted in to that particular period when this man, Josiah the king, was seeking the Lord. But he didn't have the Word of God. But he knew one thing, that idolatry should be put down. Now, another young man's encouraging him. Will you listen to this? This is great. Chapter 2, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the firstfruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Now, this is quite lovely. God is doing something, I think, quite wonderful here. He's asking Israel to remember the springtime of their relationship to him, when he called them out of the land of Egypt, and how they followed the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day. And that was a period in which out in that fearful and frightful and terrible wilderness, they sought the Lord. And God now reminds them of that. But they are in the land now. And as he'd said concerning the northern kingdom under Hosea, Ephraim waxed fat and kicked. They're sophisticated now, and they've turned away from the living God and gone after idols. Friends, you can't help but note that there's analogy here between that nation and where we are today. God is left out today. Our nation was founded by men and women that believed that the book was the Word of God, and everything they did was based on that book. And one of the reasons today that our government is not functioning like it should be, as one outstanding historian of the present, I've quoted him on this program, and he has made the statement that today our nation is control of men who do not know the spiritual heritage of our nation. We're away from God today. Now, we're going after idols, the almighty dollar. The best news out of New York today is the stock market. The best news out of Washington today is the fact that we're getting in a lot of money. And money is the God of the present hour. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is the almighty dollar today. 
and God's left out. Now, this makes this a very wonderful thing. God says here, and I want to move on down here, I remember thee. God says, I remember you. You've forgotten me, though. Isn't that lovely? And then he goes on here in verse 3. Israel was holiness under the Lord. Don't you remember back there how you belonged to me? You followed me, and you were led to me. How wonderful. Now he moves on. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. And you notice the message, although the ten tribes are scattered, they've been carried into captivity, they're still around. Let's put one thing down and make sure about it. The ten tribes never got lost. And therefore, you can't find them today. I know that there are several groups around today that think they're maybe in one of the states of the Union, that they're in this country, or they're in Great Britain. They're not lost. Still, same people, by the way. And God's message was to them in that day, though they were in Assyrian captivity. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? I think this is without doubt one of the greatest passages that it's possible to put your hand on here. It's a great passage of Scripture. God says, and notice in such a wonderful way he approaches them. He said, what did I do wrong that you turned from me? What's wrong with God today, friends, that we're not interested in him? And we're not interested in serving him. Is there something wrong with God? Is the unrighteousness with God? Is God doing wrong today? How wonderful this is. And notice how he approaches this here. What iniquity have your fathers found in me? What did I do wrong? Do I do evil? And verse 6, Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt? that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. People didn't go through that country. Friends, there are not many go through there today. I've been at the edge of it, and that's as far as I wanted to go. You can have it. But God kept his people there 40 years, and he took care of them. And he goes on to remind them, verse 7, "...and I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination." Now, we hear a great deal today about ecology and that we need to clean up the land. May I say to you, that's good. It needs cleaning up. But, you know, there's a lot of moral filth around today. There is a lot of degradation and deterioration in character. And that's the thing that God's talking about. They polluted God's land. They would have come in and be a witness to him. And now they're as bad as the people that were in that land. Now, verse 8, God puts the responsibility on the spiritual leaders And I think the problem began in the church in this country. 
No nation falls until it falls first spiritually. There is, first of all, spiritual apostasy, moral awfulness, and then political anarchy. That's the way every nation makes its exit as a great nation. Verse 8, The priests said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. And again, may I make this statement, and I do not want to engage in carping criticism, but there are too many folk that are supposed to be Bible teachers and preachers and witnesses for him today, even among the laymen, and they don't know the Word of God, friend. They don't know it. I'm sorry to say that. It ought not to have to be said, but it happens to be true. And as a result, they really don't know God. You have to know his word to know him. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Wherefore, now listen to God, though. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. God says, I haven't given you up. I'm still going to plead with you. How wonderful it is. Now notice verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's one thing. The second thing is, and they've hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And how many people have hewn them out a little cistern, and they're drinking at that cistern today? And it's not satisfying them. Men never are satisfied by getting rich. Every man ever made a million, one makes two million. And then two million leads to more. And the same thing applies to fame today. Now, God goes on in dealing with these people, and he tells them about their backsliding. Mentions it now for the first time. Verse 19 Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it's an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. Now, I'm not going to talk about backsliding today, but next time in chapter 3, you're going to find out that it's mentioned in that one chapter as many times there as it's mentioned in the rest of the Bible. So it must be rather important, you see, here. And therefore, we'll hold that till the next time. Now he's going after them on this matter of idolatry. The Lord won't give them up, but they've reared up their own gods and they've followed their own devices and when man rejects God, he always will make an idol. And the interesting thing is, and we'll have an occasion to talk about this later on, when people make an idol, they always make one that they want, that they like, that they can meet his demands. In other words, actually, an idol is just a projection of the old nature of man. And every idol represents that. And that's what you have here in this particular section. In fact, all the way through this first section, it is a polemic against idolatry. Now, we're going to deal with that 
in chapter 3, because he deals with that in the remainder of chapter 2 here. And I want to recommend that though I will not be dealing with each verse, that you read this section and read all the way through this prophecy of Jeremiah. Become familiar with it, friends, and you'll be surprised how wonderful it'll come to you. Somebody said, I read the Bible and I don't understand it. Well, I never did understand a geometry problem by reading it over the first time. I had to study it. And I believe that you'll not understand the Word of God by reading it the first time. And too many people put down the Bible when they read it the first time and say, I don't understand it. Keep reading it until you do. God will open up your heart to understand. Now, friends, as we come to the third chapter of Jeremiah, you will recall that in chapter 2 we said that there begins a message there that covers all of chapter 2 and then takes in five verses of chapter 3. And so we want to conclude the message of last time and then begin this new message that he has here. But all of chapters 2 through 6 was given during the first five years of Jeremiah's ministry. And that was before the book of the law was found. But it was during the time when Josiah, a young man like Jeremiah, was seeking the Lord. And he was putting in certain reforms in the nation. And the main thing that he was doing, he was cleaning up idolatry, as we saw Actually, the nation had just gone over to idolatry and had forsaken the living God. And you can see with the king's help and this young prophet that they had a tremendous effect upon the nation. Now, they went over to idolatry for a very definite reason. And the reason was that that was the easy way as well as the popular way. But it was a way that lowered the standards in Israel and had brought them down to a low moral level. Now, chapter 3, as it opens, will you let me read here. They say, if a man put away his wife, and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Now, you see, they had dropped down to a very low level. There was gross immorality in the land. They were given over to that. He mentions that in the next verse, verse 2 of chapter 3 of Jeremiah. Lift up thine eyes unto the high places, and see where thou hast not been lain with. In the ways hast thou sat for them as the Arabian in the wilderness, and thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. Now, idolatry, and I'm not talking about just making a little image, Anything that a man gives himself to is idolatry. Covetousness is therefore idolatry because of the fact that someone covets something and they give their time, their energy. They're dedicated to that. 
Now, there are a great many people dedicated to sin and the energy of sin, especially in these last days. It's tremendous. But you see, the minute that a man turns away from the living God, he will turn to something, and it'll be something that he's made. That'll be his God. That'll be his idol. Now, Dr. Morgan has made this very fine statement, and it is a very enlightened statement, by the way, and I want to share it with you now. When a man makes a God according to the pattern of his own being, he makes a God like himself, an enlargement of his own imperfection. Moreover, the God which a man makes for himself will demand from him that which is according to his own nature. It is clearly evident in Mohammedanism, great and wonderful and outstanding in his personality as Mohammed was, yet the blighting sensuality of the man curses the whole of Islam today. Man will be faithful to those gods who make no demands upon them which are out of harmony with the desires of their own heart. When God calls man, it is the call of the God of holiness, the God of purity, the God of love, and he demands that they rise to his height. He cannot accommodate himself to the depravity of their nature. He will not consent to the things of desire within them that are of impurity and evil. He calls men up and even higher until they reach the height of perfect conformity to his holiness. God's call to humanity is always first pure and then peaceable, first holy and then happy, first righteous and then rejoicing. My friend, may I say to you, that is a tremendous statement. That's the end of it there. Now, here, God says to these people, as he concluded this second chapter here, this is a generation that had gone wholeheartedly into idolatry, and as a result, there was gross immorality. And as he said here, that they had gone to the high places. Unless you're acquainted with the high places... In that day, you can't conceive of how grossly immoral they were. Those high places were a place where there was a grove of trees and an altar there, and all kinds of sex orgies were carried on there. And all kinds of drunkenness was carried on there. And as a result, why, the nation had sunk down to a low level. And again, the knowledge is evident, is it not? We've forsaken the living and true God, and look at the moral condition of this nation. Look how lawless it is today, the dishonesty that there is today, the corruption in language and the speech of people. I heard a little fellow the other day cursing like a sailor. My, now some sailor's going to write to me and reprimand me for that. But that's an old saying, and I'm just using it. But what I'm trying to say is that little fella knew how to cuss, and he was doing a 
terrible job of it, too. Now, that is the sordid and sorry condition today, and that was the condition in that land. Now, God says, I've already begun to judge you. Verse 3, Therefore the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain. And thou hadst a horse forehead, thou refusest to be ashamed. Two things. God says, I've already begun to judge you. I'm withholding rain. You see, that land today is dry. The greatest need in that land today is water. They don't need oil. Somebody says, wasn't it too bad that Israel didn't find oil down in the Negev? Well, they found water, and that was much more precious, much more valuable to them than oil. They need water in the land. Now, God began to withhold the water from them. And I believe that when they are there under the blessing of God, they're going to get all the water that they need. God says he'll supply it. And I think God judges us as a people, as a nation, because of many of these things that have happened to us. We've had so many national calamities over the period now of the past months and several years, but it doesn't wake us up, doesn't bring us to God at all. Now we come here to this second message that begins here in verse 6. And this, by the way, is a message in which God makes a charge against them of backsliding during now the reign of Josiah. And Josiah was a good king. Now, the word backsliding is mentioned seven times in this chapter. And that's more than half of the number in the entire book. And Jeremiah has more mention of backsliding than the rest of the Bible put together. He and Hosea are the ones who use the term. Now, you will find here that backsliding means something a little bit different than we think that it does. Backsliding to us actually means to slide backwards. Isn't that what backsliding is? Yes. But this is the way that it works out. And you see the vivid picture of it when God said to Israel through Hosea, he said, Ephraim is a backsliding heifer. Now, if you've never had the privilege of loading calves into a truck, in my day it was a wagon, and I remember as a boy that there lived next door to us in southern Oklahoma, a rancher. He had two sons, and they were the meanest boys, and I ran with them. I was a good boy, of course, but I ran with them, and we'd go out the ranch sometimes and help load up these heifers and little bulls, too, by the way. Now, backsliding is this. You know, you would try to get the little old fella in the wagon. You know what he would do? He'd put down his front feet and make them stiff as he could be, and he'd brace himself so you couldn't move him up. And when you tempt him to move up the ramp to get him in the wagon, when he put those legs down, he'd just start slipping backward. That's backsliding. That's what it means in the Bible. That means to refuse to go God's way. It's refuse to listen to him. And when we do the thing that little animal did, that little heifer did, putting down our front feet, and I tell you, making them stiff, and as a result, instead of going up, they go backwards. 
And when you and I refuse to do what God wants us to do and we rebel against him, that's backsliding because what happens? You'll start moving backwards every time. You get farther and farther away from God. Now, notice what he says here to them. Verse 6, "...the Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She's gone up upon every high mountain, under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot." God says to this nation, "...take a lesson from Israel." Now, Israel's gone into captivity. But notice what they did. They did exactly what you did. And Ephraim was a backsliding heifer. I tried to get them to return to me, and they would not return to me. And as a result, they're in captivity. Let that be a lesson to you. Now, God said back here in verse 1, you remember, God says, "...yet return again to me, saith the Lord." Now, God says, though you played the harlot, you belong to me and you played the harlot, yet God says, if you come back to me, I'll receive you. And that's the reason that any prodigal son or any prodigal daughter or any prodigal family or any prodigal church or any prodigal nation can always come back to God. He won't punish them if you come back. In fact, he'll receive you. The prodigal son He didn't get any kicks when he got home. He got those in the far country. He got kisses. And he nearly starved to death in the far country, but they made a banquet for him, the father did, when he came home. Now, he says here, that should be a lesson to you. They went into idolatry. I sent them into captivity. Verse 7, And I said, after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me, but she returned not. God says, I gave her an opportunity to turn to me. I would have taken her back, but she wouldn't come. And her treacherous sister Judas saw it. Now, the sin of Judas compounded. And I actually think their captivity was much worse than the ten northern tribes. And the reason, I think, is quite self-evident. The ten northern tribes went into Assyrian captivity. But I want to tell you, Judah had them as an example and didn't listen at all. The tragedy today in this country, we have a Bible. And I get a little weary of hearing people, I don't know what they're trying to prove. They get up and say, we live in a land where you have an open Bible and you can read the Bible. Well, thank God for that, but who's reading it? How many are reading it? What difference does it make if you have a freedom if you're not? Judah did not turn to God. They had an example. You and I have the Word of God today, and I believe God will judge this country worse than he'll judge Russia. Now, listen to him. Verse 9, "...it came to pass, though the lightness of her whoredom, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stock." that is, made idols of these. Verse 10, "...and yet for all this her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly saith the Lord." Now, this revival under this man that is King Josiah was a revival, no question about it. Many people turned to God, but it was so popular that it actually was not anything but a surface. 
return. It was a surface return to God by and large as far as the nation is concerned. Now, I believe today that there is a renewed interest in the Word of God, and I think more people are getting saved now. I know at any time during my ministry, but let's be very careful. It's not revival. It's quite surface today. And don't be deceived by the big crowds in places and by the number that are supposed to accepted Christ. You just divide that by two and then subtract that from what you have left, and you probably get the number that really are genuinely converted. We're seeing a great surface movement as well as a genuine movement today. Now will you notice verse 11, "...and the Lord said unto me, The backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah." In other words, God makes it clear. He says, the sin of Judah's worse than that of Israel. Up north, they didn't have the opportunity. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the Word of God. And I tell you, our judgment has to be greater. Verse 12, "...go and proclaim these words toward the north, and say, Return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I'll not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I'm merciful, saith the Lord, and I'll not keep anger forever." God says, I'll bring you back into the land if you turn to me. How gracious God is. How wonderful he is. Only acknowledge thine iniquity. And today, the big problem is just simply this, is a lack of confession of sin. And a lot of this movement today is, oh, I read a book recently and disturbed me. The man uses the first-person pronoun more than anybody I've ever heard. <laughs> and the Lord gets no glory in that. What God's done for him, made him a millionaire, and he's been successful and all that. I don't find where he was ever saved from sin. Confess your iniquity. My friend, today you say you're a Christian. What do you mean by that? Oh, I've trusted Christ. Trusted him for what? I trusted him as my Savior. He's done so much for me. Fine, I'm glad to hear that. But did he save you from sin? Remember, he died on the cross to save you from sin, not to give you a new personality or make you a millionaire. He died to save you from sin. He was delivered for our offenses. And we were very offensive to God, by the way. Are you saved, friend? That's important today. Oh, this man Jeremiah, he gets down under my skin. He worries me. Now, will you notice verse 14? Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I'm married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I'll bring you to Zion. Oh, how gracious God was. Verse 15, And I'll give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And friends, if you have a Bible-teaching pastor, you ought to run over right now and put your arm around him, and you ought to protect him because they're valuable today. They're few and far between. Verse 16, "...it shall come to pass when ye be multiplied and increased in the land in those days, saith the Lord." They shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done any more. 
and you'll find all the way through Jeremiah these rays of light. Have you ever been out on a cloudy day and then all of a sudden in a rainstorm the sun breaks through and you see a rainbow? Well, all through the prophecies of Jeremiah, he brings these to our attention, and this is one of them. At that time, now that reaches on into the millennium, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. Verse 18, "...in those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance unto your fathers." Glorious prophecy of the future that he just puts in you. It's like a little gem. Then he says, "...at that day thou shalt call me my father." Now, no individual Israelite ever called God father. He was a father to the nation, and he called Israel my son, but he never called David his son. He says, David, my servant. He never called Moses his son. He called him Moses, my servant. It's only in this day of grace. How wonderful it is. How privileged we are today. To as many as received him, that is the Lord Jesus, to them, those that received Christ, the right, the exousion power to become the sons of God to those that don't do any more nor less than just simply trust in his name. Oh, is he your Savior today from sin? If he is, you're not only a saved sinner, you're a son of God. Oh, how wonderful it is to be that. Now, again he says, verse 22, "...return ye backsliding children, I'll heal your backsliding." heal you. You get a little sore in a very prominent place if you do a lot of backsliding, friend. God says, I'll heal you if you'll come to me. Now, in verse 23, and this is the same you find in Psalm 121.1, "...truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains." Psalm 121.1 says, "...shall I lift up mine eyes to the hill?" That's where those high places were. David says, oh, no, never there. I lift up mine eyes unto the Lord. Salvation comes for him. And that is the thing that he's saying here. Now, he says, verse 25, "...we lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we've sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth, even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God." They didn't confess their sin, but Jeremiah confessed it for them and for himself also. You know, that wouldn't hurt to have a little confessing of sin going on today instead of all of this gibbering about, oh, I've got a special gift, or I'm a super-duper saint, or God has blessed me in a wonderful way. Well, thank God if he's blessed you in a wonderful way. But don't you feel like that you're coming short of the glory of God? Have you been to him and told him how far you fall short? My friend, we need a little humbling today, and I'm not sure about what God's getting ready to let us have it.